You're listening to a sermon from crckulaman.org. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would uh, just bring life to these words that I share this afternoon. Our hearts are open, our minds are open, Lord. We, we do want to not just hear, but we want to receive these words. And so we just pray that you would um, really highlight the things to us the, this afternoon that you want us to, to, to know and, and understand and grow in, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, did you know that your brain is lazy? Yes, that's not new news to some of you. Actually, I see a few people smiling and nodding. Your brain is lazy. Um, Our brains are always looking for new ways to save effort. Uh, Otherwise, they would quickly become... Yep, just stick there. Otherwise, they would quickly become overwhelmed. So there's this vast amount of information that we are processing all the time that our, our brains need to try and contend with. And so the, the way our brains handle all this information is to look for opportunities to kind of convert any series of actions into an automated routine. Uh, actions are converted into routines and these are then called habits. Maybe you're aware of some of your habits that you have and uh, maybe you're not, but often we've got bad habits, don't we? we? We often talk about, oh, I've got this bad habit of drinking Coca-Cola <laughs> or something like that. Um, but, but habits allow our brains to kind of kick into neutral for a bit and chill out so that they can then focus on other things. Um, uh, our, our garage door has a remote control uh, to, to automatically open it. And uh, so when I'm uh, arriving home, as soon as I I get to our, I see our street, I put my blinker on, I press the brake, and then I reach down to press the button to open our garage door. And I've done it so many times that I no longer actually have to consciously think about doing it. It's it's just automatic. As soon as my brain registers Kinder Kinder Crescent, uh, that's, that's my cue. And this automatic routine, sort of like a computer program, just clicks into gear. I stick on the blinker, I brake, I I press the button to open the door. And it's so much of an unconscious routine or habit that even when I'm driving our other car that doesn't have the button for the garage, I still do it. I still click, click, click and reach down to to open the garage. But of course, there's there's no button there because it's, it's the other car. There's a book uh, called The Power of Habit by Charles uh, Duhigg, and he says, most of the choices we make each day may feel like the products of well-reasoned decision-making, but actually, they're not. They are habits. And so did you know that 40% of the actions we take in our day are habits, not decisions? Think about that for a moment. 40% on average of the the stuff you do in a day, you're not actually consciously thinking about it. 40% of your day, your brain is in neutral. Again, maybe maybe that's not new news to some of us today. 40% habits, not decisions. Now, last time I, I, I spoke on Matthew 11, 28, we looked at the first part of that passage 
Uh, uh, it was the idea that people were tired, we're burdened, we're restless. And Jesus says to us, come to me and I will give you rest. You're going to find rest and recovery for your soul. The problem is we don't seem to actually do that. Uh, why not? Why don't we do that? It's such a good offer, isn't it? Do you think? I mean, I think it's a good offer. I'm tired, I'm worn out, I'm exhausted. Why don't I come to Jesus and receive rest and recovery for my souls? And I think the number one reason that we don't is, is that we're just a bit lazy. We just kind of muddle our way through our tired and restless lives and we're trapped in these routines and habits that just are not life-giving for us. Our lives are driven by habits, not decisions. And these habits that we have in our life are not bringing us under the life-giving, soul-satisfying, daily authority of Jesus. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, uh, for any self-declared English literary nerds out there, and I, I don't know if they're actually here today, which is a bit of a shame because this is for them, um, but in this passage, there's what's called a chiastic structure. I don't know if I've said that right. But, but hidden throughout the Bible, you'll find all these beautiful little literary structures that you might not realise they're there. But they're there like these little hidden diamond gems. And, and so there's this, this structure here in this little passage. Idea A, idea B, idea C, idea B, idea A. So you can see there, we've got the, the, the passage is structured in this way. Weary and burdened, there's your first idea. Receive rest, second idea. Take the yoke of Jesus. Back to our second idea, you'll receive rest. Back to our first idea, um, the burden will be easy and light. Isn't that a beautiful little structure hidden in there? And, and of course, what that emphasises, can you see what is the key significant part of this verse? By, by structuring it in this way, Take a stab at it. What do you think is the most important, significant focal point? Imagine this is like a magnifying glass that they've, they've um, placed on one of the ideas there. What do you think is the most significant idea? The yoke. That's what it's, it's funneled in. It's focused in on. That's the, the most significant part of, of what we're reading today. We're talking about the yoke of Jesus. And so let me give you a bit of uh, background or context for what we're talking about here. So we've got Jesus in this passage. He's talking to the crowds. So this is the general, everyday, ordinary population. And these people were burdened by the rules and the obligations placed on them uh, by their religious leaders, by the Roman government, and by the, just the general expectations of culture. And maybe that's not so different from us today. Religious burdens, government burdens, the general pressures of culture. I, I think this is relatable for us. And then he uses this word yoke. 
It's a bit of an unusual word, isn't it? Yoke. Not to be confused with egg yolks or clothing yolks. Um, if you've heard a sermon on this before, you'll probably know that a yoke is the wooden uh, beam or crossbar that, that joins together uh, to, say, oxen uh, so that they can, can work in the fields and pull a load. But there's another use for the word yoke. It's a metaphorical use. And often in the Bible you'll see, particularly in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to when God's people are oppressed by foreign nations. So they're in slavery to foreign nations like Egypt. And so you'll see uh, passages that talk about God's people being under the yoke of Egypt. And at home you could look up Lamentations 5.5 or Leviticus 26.13 and you'll see the word yoke used there in that sort of metaphorical way. But there's another way the word yoke was used. And I think that's the key relevant way here in this passage that Jesus is is using it for. And this actually comes from Jewish writings, not the Bible per se. But but in Jewish writings, you'd have this idea of um, them coming and putting their neck under the yoke of the Torah and letting their souls receive instruction. So that's a, a quote there from some Jewish writing. And so Jewish teachers who were called rabbis, they would interpret how the people were to live out the law of God, which is called the Torah, all right? And these these were the oral interpretations of the law. And these interpretations were considered divine in the sense of they've come from God and therefore they they were part of God's law and had to be obeyed. So you had the, the, the the written law or the written word, you had the, the oral law or the oral word, and together they were all the rules Jews had to follow to be in good relationship with God. And, and, and this was known as the, the yoke, living under the yoke of the Torah. Now what's really radical here, if you stop and think about it for a moment, it, is that Jesus is telling people to put their neck under his yoke under his teaching, under his authority, under his interpretation of God's word and to let their souls receive instruction from him. So Jesus tells people, come and live under my authority because it's going to be better for you than the yoke you're currently living under. Jesus says, I offer a radically different way of life to the usual way, to the usual human way. And if you think about that, you can probably get some some sort of sense why he he got himself into trouble by saying, come and live under my yoke rather than that other yoke of the Torah that, that you have been living under. And Jesus says, my way is radically different to the usual human or world way because He says his way is gentle and humble. He says you're going to find rest for your soul there. And he says that his burden is easy and light. So we're going to have a look at those three things that Jesus claims, that Jesus says. Firstly, that he's he's gentle and humble. Here's the thing you've got to know. No one, absolutely no one, was humble in the Greco-Roman world. Humility was a weakness, was a character flaw. There was something wrong with you if you were humble. 
It, it wasn't considered to be a virtue like it would be today. Something that was associated with very low status or condition. And, and no one is going to claim that it's, it's, it's cool to be humble. And so, of course, it was even more undesirable or odd thing for, in that culture for a king or a leader to be championing his humility and servant-like qualities. Of course, even now, it's, it's probably a strange thing to try and claim that you're humble because claiming that you're humble was sort of it immediately cancels out your humility, doesn't it? As the cartoon there would suggest. But in Jesus saying that he's humble there are two really significant implications here, all right, that, that maybe it's not immediately apparent in this passage, but this is significant. There's all this sort of implicit stuff here that Jesus is saying. Firstly, in saying that he's humble, this is actually a claim that Jesus is making to be the Messiah. So the Jews were waiting for a great uh, leader, Messiah, to come and put things right for them. And, and really what they meant by that was to come and free them from Roman rule, to come and free them from that oppressive Roman rule. Um, Old Testament prophecies said that the Messiah would be a humble servant. And so what Jesus is saying when he says is, uh, that he comes as one who is humble, he's linking himself to those prophecies about the Messiah. He's saying, I am the one with real authority because I'm the Messiah. If you were to have a look at verses 25 to 27 that come just before that passage, and you know, if you do have a physical Bible with you, it's great to be able to just see this passage in its wider context there in Matthew. But if you were to have a look at verses 25 to 27, Jesus there is talking about his relationship with the Father. And he says that all things have been handed to him by his father. Jesus is the one with authority because it's been handed to him by his father. It's been given to him by not just anyone, but by the Lord of the heavens and earth. And so Jesus is not just making some sort of unsubstantiated claim that he's the leader and therefore we should follow him as the leader. Because lots of people do that, don't they? Think about it in our, our time. Lots of people, lots of even um, you know pastors or politicians. They say, "Hey, I'm the leader. Follow me." But but they don't necessarily have the goods or the authority to be people you should follow. Um, so big promises made by people often lead, lead to big disappointment in those who follow them if there's no uh, real substance to their claims to be a leader. But Jesus is saying here, "You can trust me." And you should trust me and you should listen to me because I am the one who has been sent by God. I have heavenly authority. I have heavenly power to be the one who leads you in life and shows you what is good and wise. Jesus is saying, I'm the real legitimate source of authority sent by God. So that's the first implication. The second implication of him telling us that he's humble is to reassure us that his authority will be gentle, will be tender, will be caring. It's not going to be like the usual authority in the world because the word authority, it's got negative connotations, doesn't it? It's got negative 
things attached to it for us. And I tell you what, that right there, that's, that's good news for soul-weary people. You know, for those of us who are, are fragile or easily crushed by life, and, and maybe that's many of us, maybe that's possibly even most of us listening here today. For those of us who are, who are fragile and easily crushed by life, this is good news. There's an Old uh, Testament prophecy again quoted if we look at the other side of this verse in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 17 to 21 there. And it's quoting from uh, Isaiah, an, another prophecy about the Messiah being a servant who will bring justice. That says he will not break a bruised reed or quench a smouldering wick. <laughs> Aren't they beautiful words? Truly beautiful words. And I, I think this is, this is welcome news for those who are bruised by life, those who struggle, those who lack confidence, those who have health issues that, that hinder you, those who have experienced any sort of trauma or abuse or, or hardship or difficulty. Jesus will be gentle with you. Jesus will be gentle with you. And for those of us who maybe you don't feel very capable, maybe you don't feel very charismatic or very confident, uh, it's good to know that Jesus will be sensitive to your needs. He's not going to add further guilt or expectation or burden to you. That's, that's not the Jesus way. That's the way of the world. That's our own way at times, isn't it? Sometimes we're our own worst enemies and we, we put all this pressure and burden on ourselves. But it's, it's not Jesus' way. No, he offers you freedom from those things. Jesus tells people that the reason they should live under the yoke of his authority is because he is the legitimate source of authority and his authority is gentle and it's life-giving. I mean, is that good news for you today? That's good news for you every day, isn't it? Do you believe that? Is it true? Secondly, Jesus tells people to come and live under his authority because they'll find rest for their souls there. Tell you what, rest is a hard thing to find in our world, isn't it? The word soul, gosh, in our, in our current culture could refer to anything from um, food to otherworldly kind of spirity stuff to a Disney movie. Uh, but what I want to say is, is soul, as it's referred to in the Bible, it, it's, it's not meant to just be kind of like the, the floaty part of you, all right? Um, soul, uh, in a biblical sense, refers to the whole of you, the whole of a person. It, it's all of your outer, physical, breathing life, as well as your, your inner heart, um, emotions, personality life. It's, it's you. You are a soul in, in, in your entirety. 
You are a person who's alive, and you're a person who experiences the world in a certain way. You are a soul. And so maybe you could say soul is, is akin to the self. It's, it's you as a person. Now, the last time I looked at this passage, we talked about restlessness in people. Do you, do you remember? Were you here for that? We talked about the great restlessness in people and in our world. The way of the world, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I observe. The way of the world is to try and deal with our restlessness and discontentment by discovering our personal worth and value. Do, do you think that's true? Is that the way the world deals with restlessness? Is it like, like we feel insecure and incomplete, like we're, we're, we're lacking something, and so we try and fill that void by feeling better about ourselves, by um, trying to discover greater worth and value in who we are as a person. We, we try and feel more empowered as a person to, to deal with this inner discontentment that sits in here. That's what I've noticed. You know, we try and see ourselves as, as, as successful, as significant, and we think that if we can just feel more successful and more significant, then our souls will feel at rest and satisfied. That's, that's the way of the world. But you know what I notice? Oh, I think increasingly it, it's becoming the message of the church too. And, and maybe I'm guilty of this from time to time. Maybe, maybe it's a Pentecostal thing. I, I don't know. But, but increasingly what I see happening is that the gospel is interpreted through a lens of self-discovery, self-fulfillment, and self-actualization. It's this sense that Jesus is going to bring about the complete realization of your potential and the full development of your abilities and appreciation for life. And I mean, I guess there's some merit to that, to a point. But, but that's not actually the gospel. It's not the gospel. That idea actually comes straight out of psychology, straight out of, uh, uh, if you're familiar with Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, that's, that's, that's straight out of his book. And the problem with that is the focus on the self rather than on Jesus. You know, there's a church with a mural on the outside of their building, and I must say, it is a beautiful mural. It's eye-catching. So you drive past, you're like, ooh, look at that mural. It's beautiful. And, and the mural says, know your worth. That's their, that's their message to the community. Know your worth. And um, on their Facebook page, the explanation in, in, of that mural is this. It says, if only you knew your worth, maybe you would see things a little differently. I mean, it sounds so very nice, doesn't it? But uh, I don't know, I can't help but think that if the Apostle Paul were to get his paintbrush out and paint a mural, he's probably going to paint a mural that says, all I considered worthwhile in me, I now consider garbage compared to the worth of Christ. It's probably not quite as eye-catchy a mural to paint on the outside of your church building, is it, uh, for the community to read as they drive past. But, but the reality is if only we knew the worth of Jesus, 
we would see things a little differently. We would see ourselves a little differently, wouldn't we? And that's where the focus needs to be, not on ourselves, but on Jesus. The focus must be on him because anything else is not going to satisfy the restlessness in your soul. It's never going to go away by looking deeper into yourself. Jesus doesn't say the way to freedom, peace and life is found by discovering your true self and your true inner worth. The way to soul contentment and rest, Jesus says, is by coming to him and living under his authority. Is that true? Do you believe that? Is that the message of the gospel? I don't want to make you say amen, but gosh darn it, like is it true? Number three, Jesus tells people to come and live under his authority because he takes our burdens. He doesn't add to them. Now, the people Jesus was speaking to were under this this religious yoke of the law. And as I said before, rabbis, the religious teachers, they would make new interpretations about what following the law looked like in everyday life. Now, the problem with that, well, there's probably a few problems with that, but but one of the problems with that was that, that over time there were more and more obligations for people to follow. And it became very legalistic. And of course, you couldn't just purge the list occasionally and chuck out the ones that you didn't like anymore because these oral interpretations were, were considered to come from God. They were considered to be divine. And, and so you couldn't just ask the old ones because it would be like saying God was wrong back then and had changed his mind. So that doesn't work, does it? And, and so what, what ended up happening was that there were a lot of rules to follow. It was hard to follow them all. And it became a burden for people's everyday life. Now, I think to give us a sense of of what living under the yoke of the law was like, here are some oral interpretations, all right, that rabbis have made on what work on the Sabbath is, wait for it, for modern day Jews, okay? So this is cool. This came straight from the Orthodox Union of America website. You can get the modern day Sabbath rules. I mean, how fascinating. You've got to go home and Google this. I don't know. I mean, clearly, clearly I'm wired different to the average person, but I found this really interesting. So let me give you some highlights of some of the oral interpretations of the law for the Jews today. You ready? So you can't cut or tear paper, okay? So what that means is toilet paper. Religious Jews use pre-cut toilet paper on the Sabbath. Um, you were, however, allowed to tear open... Everyone's now just imagining the logistics of that, aren't they? Sorry. Um, you were hal- allowed, however, to tear open a food package, all right, but you should avoid doing that if it was going to tear writing on the packet. That's bad, all right? Um, you can't throw a toothpick in a fire, you can't light a match, you can't drive a car, you can't use electricity on the Sabbath because that's all considered variations on lighting fires. I don't know, there was some mechanics explained about how car engines work and 
somehow they made it sound like you were lighting a fire by making your engine go, but anyway. Um, you can't seal an envelope or, or stick a stamp on an envelope on the Sabbath, um, but you can fasten something with a safety pin on the Sabbath because a safety pin is a temporary fastening, but the sticky bit on an envelope apparently is a permanent fastening, so that's that fastening, so that's the difference there. Um, you can't tie a knot, but you can tie a bow. So it means you can tie a bow in your shoelaces, but I guess you can't tie a knot in your shoelaces. I, I don't know what happens if you mess up and you accidentally tie a knot, I don't know. Um, if you were to have a bowl of berries, and you know, sometimes there's some bad berries in the bowl, right? So you're not allowed to pick out the bad berries first and then just eat the good berries. You can't do that, that's wrong. But you can just pick out the good berries and just leave, eat the good berries and leave the bad berries behind. Now you can see how legalistic this stuff gets. How pointless some of these rules are. Swatting a fly or a mosquito counts as slaughtering. I'm guessing you probably can't set a mouse trap on the Sabbath either. Um, bad news for anyone who doesn't like flies, bugs, insects or mosquitoes. No squashing on the Sabbath. And the final one there that I've picked out for us is you can't grind coffee on the Sabbath. So right there, that counts me out of being a Jew. The webpage says, after reading through the 39 categories of work, you might have come to the feeling that keeping the Sabbath is an impossibly complex task. Uh, yep. This sort of stuff is what people lived with. So, so this is who Jesus is talking to. And Jesus is offering them a radically different way. Now, what's interesting is most teachers of the law could only teach accepted interpretations, so interpretations that other rabbis had already made. So only, um, they could only teach, I guess, the authorised curriculum, a bit like scripture teaching. I'm only allowed to teach from the authorised curriculum that, that someone else a bit smarter and more clever than me has put together. But some rabbis had this special status called authority, all right? And, and so these rabbis who had this status of authority, they were the ones who were allowed to make new interpretations of the law. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, some little, little lights might be switching on right about now. Think about passages like Matthew 7, 28, 29 where Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and people are amazed because Jesus taught with one, as one with authority, not like their usual Torah teachers. He taught as one with authority. So he comes and brings a new interpretation a fresh understanding, a fresh way of following God's law. He comes with a new yoke. Now, my guess is Jesus didn't have formal um, endorsement from the religious leaders as one with authority who was allowed to make these new interpretations of the law. Uh, but it was an authority status given to him by his heavenly father that saw him teach these new interpretations. But of course, it would explain why the leaders were so offended and outraged um, that he was teaching outside of the authorised curriculum. 
kind of all starts to make a bit more sense, doesn't it, when you understand some of this Jewish stuff. Jesus is saying, I'm not like the other rabbis. My yoke is not going to add more fussy rules and burdens to your already overstretched, exhausted life. And you know, that's the message he has for you today too. He says, I'm here to bring freedom and a new, clearer, better way of living. My way is easy and it's light. In fact, he says, he says I've come to serve you. Just, just grab hold of that for a moment. Jesus says, I, I've, I've come to serve you. I, I've come to help you carry your burdens. I, I've come to make your life lighter. Now, if you have ever felt like the Christian life is all about rules and duties, and obligations, and try harder, do more, make a difference for the kingdom, meet certain standards of godliness, I want you to understand what it means for Jesus to be one who carries a different sort of authority. His is the way of grace. His way gives to you rather than expects from you. You could go home and you could read things like Matthew 20, 28, 1 Peter 2, 24, 1 John 13, or, or even uh, Galatians 2, 20, that, that, that talks about how, how Jesus comes to take your burdens, comes to serve you. I encourage you, go home, read those passages, get them into your heart. I love the, the message paraphrase of this passage. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, this is the message. It says, are you tired? Yep. Are you worn out? Yeah. Are you burned out on religion? Actually? Yeah, a bit. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus tells people to come and live under his authority because his burden is an easy and light one. Jesus shows us that he offers us a radically different way of life, a way of grace where, where he gives, where he enables, where he takes burdens, where he serves, where he's, he's gentle and he's tender with us. His way is, is the only way we are able to live a revived and a satisfied life. So what's all this mean for us today? tomorrow and next week. When Jesus tells them and us to take his yoke, this means we, we really need to put Jesus in charge of our everyday life and, and we need to intentionally live our daily lives under his good authority. 
in New Testament times, to take up the yoke of the rabbi was for a very special and select group of people, usually men. Not everyone would get to take up the yoke of a rabbi. They were men that were called the Talmud. Do you know what that word means? It's a word you've probably heard a bit. It's the word for disciples. The Talmud, they were disciples of a rabbi and they would take up the yoke of that particular rabbi. What that meant was they would live with that rabbi, they would eat with that rabbi, they would sleep with that rabbi, well, in the, anyway. Um, they, would, they would breathe and literally follow in the footsteps of their teacher. They were consumed every minute of every day. They wanted to be like their rabbi. They, they didn't just want to know what he teaches. They didn't just want to hang out with him in a crowd. A disciple is someone who wants to be what the rabbi is. There's a deep commitment to, to not just knowing the scriptures but to giving up every other priority to be like their rabbi, to follow him. And we see in the Bible, we see the disciples, what do they give up? They give up their fishing careers, don't they? To go and follow their rabbi. And we see the rich young ruler unwilling to give up everything in order to follow Jesus. And so when he's saying, come to me, and take my yoke upon you, he's actually inviting people to be his disciples. And so the point is not just knowing Jesus as a friend or as a counsellor, you know, there's, there's more going on here. He, he, Jesus is not just someone who does a spiritual transaction for you, like a bank teller or a conveyancing solicitor, you know, enabling you to um, live in eternal life or something. Coming to Jesus is about being his disciple. And so our daily lives, they're to be shaped around following our rabbi and becoming who he is. Not just knowing some of the things that he teaches, not just, just hanging out with him in a crowd on the side of a hill or in a school hall. Our daily lives are to be shaped around following our rabbi and becoming who he is. And he is calling you to be his disciple, to live under the yoke of his authority and his teaching. And this is how you will live a satisfied life. Because placing your trust in Jesus and, and, and weaving your daily life around him, it is going to establish a life that is secure and firm and safe and good. And so my challenge for us is, is how secure are the things that you are currently wrapping your life around? I mean, is it your work? Is that what you wrap your life around? Is it your home? Is that where you find your security, your finances, your relationship, maybe even your family? I mean, they're all good things, aren't they? But are they permanent? Are they eternal? Are they the, the source of life? You know, they're likely to be the, the, the 
primary focus, aren't they, of our daily uh, attention and affection, but they're not secure. I mean, in a moment, all of them could be gone. They can't be your rock. Only Jesus is your rock. John Altberg tells a story. He's, he's trying to cross a river. He's out hiking. And um, the only way he can get across this, this river is by jumping on some rocks that are positioned across the river. Now, the way the rocks are positioned is that they're just far enough away that he has, and they're, they're just small enough that he can only kind of fit one foot on each rock and he has to leap from one to the next to the next. He can't just sort of step across. He has to leap. And so um, he's looking at these rocks and he's assuming that the rocks in this river are securely fastened in the earth, that they're securely fixed, all right, embedded in the ground. And so he leaps and one of the rocks moves and he falls and he goes to emergency. But as we leap throughout our day, we, we assume that the things we're leaping on are secure and that they are going to enable us to get through life with ease and success. But I just, I've got to tell you, the rocks in your life just aren't that secure. Jesus is the rock that is solid and secure and reliable and life-giving. And in being his disciple, we are choosing to step on him as we go about our life, making deliberate choices to focus and to shape our life upon him and his yoke. Not the world's, not ours. And this is how we are to live the revived life, by becoming who he is. This, this is your calling. This is your calling. What stops you from doing it? I mean, be honest with yourself. What, what stops you from doing this? I mean, maybe you're not sure if you want to actually give your life fully over to Jesus. Maybe there's some fear there for you. Maybe there's some hurt. Maybe you've experienced some stuff in life that has been really tough and you're still hurting from those things. Maybe you're disappointed with God about some stuff. Maybe you're disappointed about some of God's followers. Yeah, there's hurt there for you. I would say if you're in either of those categories, the fear or the hurt, I would encourage you to acknowledge that. Acknowledge that before God. I would encourage you to find a Christian that you trust. Talk it through with them. Get some prayer. Get some ministry around those things. Fear, hurt. There are two reasons. But you know what the reason I think applies to probably all of us? Maybe not all of us. Some of us. Most of us. As I said at the beginning, I, I think we're a bit lazy. <laughs> or at least our brain wiring is. Like we muddle through life, trapped and restless, trapped in the routines and the habits that we just have, but they're not life-giving habits. They're not habits that are Jesus-focused. They're just the stuff that we've always done, and so we keep on doing them. You know, we become sucked into the routines that the world sets for us. Think about it. Eight to ten hours of work, 
two hours of digital screen time of some sort, eight hours of sleep, and four hours left over for eating, shopping, exercising, or walking your dog. That's a pretty typical life right there, isn't it? That's 24 hours. Our lives are, for the most part, driven by existing personal routines, not decisions that we make to apply the teaching of Jesus. Think about your life. Like, take an honest look at your life. Are the rhythms and the routines of your life growing you in faith and hope and love and godly character? And look, you might say yes, and if that's you, fantastic. Keep going. Don't stop. That's awesome. But maybe your answer is, oh, I don't know, never thought about it. I just, I just do the stuff and come here when I can and, and do the stuff again. We're almost there. It would be remiss of me today not to point out some verbs. And again, maybe this is just for the English nerds amongst us, I don't know, but you're going to hear about some verbs in this application. It's ironic, isn't it, that in a sermon about calm and rest, I'm going to give you some verbs. Of course, they're doing words, aren't they? But check this out. Come, take, learn. If you truly want to come to Jesus as his disciple, if you want to take his yoke of authority, and if you want to learn a different way from him, you need to do things. There are verbs involved in following Jesus. The irony is, to rest we must do. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Now, you already do stuff, don't you? Hands up if you do stuff. Hands up if you're asleep and didn't quite hear what I said. You already do stuff. You're doing really well, folks. I did warn you it would be a long year. You already do stuff every day. Your day is full of stuff. Some of you, you're aware of some of the stuff, aren't you? But what I want to say to you is, is much of it is habitual. Now, I'm not saying here that you need to do more stuff. What I'm saying to you is, are you doing the right stuff? Maybe you need to do less stuff so that you have space to come, to take, to learn from Jesus. Like, do you have the right habits in your life to live a revived, satisfied Jesus life? Do you? So this is what I think you should do. Read your Bible every day. No, that's not what I'm going to say. You can do that if you want. It's probably, probably going to be good for you. This is what I want you to do. It's up to you. I, I mean, I'm not going to know if you do it or not unless you tell me. Your responsibility, your life, your life, it's up to you. I want you to do a habit audit. I, I want you to make a record for maybe a day, maybe three days, maybe a whole week if you can manage it, of your routines and your habits. I want you to pause a few times a day and, and, and actually write them down and how long you've spent doing those things. 
And, and it's really helpful to actually write this stuff down because uh, it gets you aware of what you are actually doing in your day. And it helps to give you some insight about whether the habits and the routines of your life are actually helpful or not. Now, you know how they say, uh, if you want to lose weight, you're going to be more successful at it if you, like, keep a food diary or if you track your weight regularly, like, weigh yourself regularly. Um, because it, it, by tracking things, we're, we're kept more accountable to them. We're more aware of them. Remember I said at the beginning, 40% of the things you do in a day, you're not even aware that you are doing them. I mean, that's a lot of your day, isn't it? That's just gone in a cloud of nothingness. You know, your brain just checks out. And um, well, you know what I've noticed while I've been tracking my day? Um, things that I would estimate should only take five or 10 minutes, I can find that 20 to 30 minutes just disappears like that. And I think, how did, how did that happen? Time just disappears. So do a habit audit. Now, if you're really clever, you might you know, divide your life into 15-minute billable increments, all right? I mean, that'd be the way I'd love to do it, but it's actually quite hard. Like, I'm, I'm pretty motivated and pretty, you know, um, it's, it's actually, this is actually quite a difficult thing I'm asking you to do. So, so just, just pick, a, pick a time, pick a few hours, pick half a day, pick a day, and just give it a go. And I want you to notice, I want you to reflect, is this the way of a disciple? Now, I'm not suggesting major changes at this stage. Don't make changes. Just take, take some time, take a few weeks even, to regularly just study your life, observe, reflect. This is not to bring shame or burden, but, but what this is to do is to bring insight and ultimately freedom and contentment. So would you do that this week? Choose a day, a few days, write down the routines of your life, reflect on them and ask yourself, are these the right habits to enable me to live under the yoke of Jesus and the soul rest that he brings. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that, that as we go about our, our day, that you would just uh, give us an awareness of the things that we are doing in life and that you would give us a, a spirit of discernment about those things as to whether they are, are things that are uh, beneficial for a disciple, a follower of Jesus to be doing. Lord, I just pray that as we journey with you, um, we would uh, just really have a hunger and a thirst to, to shape new habits and new routines in our life that enable us to live under your yoke and in the rest that you offer. So would you do that in our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen. Did I get away with that? Was that too long? It's a bit long. I could have split it, but as I explained to Steve, it's like cells. They just respawn and just create more sermons. I just had to, just had to do it, all right? You've done well. Thank you. Head for a coffee.